This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high-energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing-along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at pianowars.com. Today we talk with Nashville-based songwriter, producer, arranger, and studio musician, Brad Jones. Brad to share some insight into his own music, along with that something extra that he brings to the stage in the studio. Brad Jones, welcome to Songwriter Stories. How you doing? Not too bad. How's it going with you? Going great. Pleasure to meet your acquaintance. Same here. All right, we're rolling, just like studio owners used to say. I mean, I, I just record on digital all day long, and I still say we're rolling. I just can't help myself. That's how we learned. You know, when I went to allmusic.com, and when I went to Discogs, and I went to Wikipedia, everything is so spotty these days in terms of credits. It's a pain in the ass. I can't yeah. tell anything. Yeah, I hate it. I, I mean, I, there's so many records I do now that like no one has I, any idea who's produced it. I, you know, they don't hold the physical product. It's, it's, it sucks. I'd like the listeners who have not heard of you to get a quick introduction to your Nashville recording studio, Alex the Great, and your partner, Robin Eden. We confederated 25 years ago, and we've been going strong ever since. Uh, our, our accountant tells us that it's unheard of for a partnership to last that long without tears and recrimination. But it's, it's lasted that long, and by our studio being the last man standing in a lot of ways, we've kind of become kind of a, a quiet, homey little institution in Nashville. So fisticuffs aren't a regular thing there then? Yeah, but like a lot of marriages, that's how we express ourselves. Okay. It works. Yeah, so. exactly. Yeah. If we walk into a session, you have a black eye, it's fine. 
It's not saying that. It's, yeah, it's been known to happen. Okay. <laughs> but the, the thing about our studio is there's sort of a, an extended family vibe about it because anyone that's ever made a record there, mm-hmm. whether they're from in town or from New Zealand or wherever they're from, they come back 10 years later and they always walk in and go, ah, back home again. Because it's, it's a homey studio. It's not one of the sterile kind of, you know, big production studios. It's a more homey one. And, you know, it's got living quarters built into it and lots of weird artwork and cool vintage instruments. And it's just sort of like a lot of people's second home. That's what, that's what we try to create, that atmosphere. I work other places too, but I probably do, you know, the majority of them at Alex. Where do your artist clients come from? I mean, I don't really hang out my shingle. I just sort of sit in one place and wait and see who comes to me. And they just come from all over and they talk to each other. They, they, they hear a record that their friend did. They like it. So then they call me, you know. Do you have any relationships with record companies that you have to do something? No, I used to. I mean, back, back in the record label era, mm-hmm. I did have relationships with, with labels and, uh, and A&R men. But right now, there's, I could only think of a very small handful of record people that I've kind of kept in contact with and have, you know, they send me work. It doesn't really happen much anymore. And that's when they say, would you, and you say yes or no, right? Not more like yeah. you must. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've never been, I've never been on the payroll of a label or, or like a house producer or anything like that. And do artists um, sometimes pitch you to produce or mix their albums remotely? Do they get in touch with you and say, hey, I got this thing and I'd like your help? It's, it's usually the artist or his manager that contacts me. I'd say that like 25% of the time it's, it's the label. 75% is the artist or their manager. Well, speaking of artists, we're going to start out with your solo career, which was relatively short. <laughs> yeah, I, I got into some other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you, well, it's not like you're not busy. Yeah. But you had it in 1995, you had an album called Guilt Flake. Am I pronouncing that correctly? That's right. Yeah. Where does that title come from? Well, a guilt flake is a kind of a thin gold-based paint that they would use to like paint frames mm-hmm. of a painting or paint the dome of a Capitol building. And so that was a sort of a very fine, expensive kind of gilded paint, you know, paint that was gold-based. And, you know, at the time I was wrestling with all different kinds of issues. I was, I was flaking out personally on some people that I knew and loved and I had some guilt about it. And so it was kind of a little bit of wordplay. And also kind of like the name of our studio, Alex the Great, I did want to invent a couple of words that people weren't exactly sure what it meant, but at least it kind of burned a visual, you know, you remembered it. I mean, there's too many records that have names like, you know, forgetting yesterday or uh, until, you know, until the next thing comes, you know, all these vague kind of things. I wanted to put some stuff in the title, you know? I like that um, you're not afraid of big words and you're not afraid of odd words or just just words that come out of nowhere, Um, like the blunderbuss. I had to look it up. I didn't know what it was. Yeah, but yeah, the blunderbuss has a real broad pattern. It's not really a precision firing. It's just kind of mows down everything that's fast without much discrimination. Yeah, I had to find the lyric on a forum, some stray forum called octopusoverlords.com, which probably means nothing. Uh, one mm. person was talking about music with another person, and they said, "Is there an f bomb in the blunderbuss?" This is something that really happened. I thought you'd find it interesting. That's why I'm sharing it. And he says, no, um, I don't think so. And he said, uh, and this is what he said about you. Brad Jones is a Nashville-based session musician producer, worked with both country and rock stuff. If anybody remembers Foster and Lloyd or is a fan of, is it Rad Foster? Radney. 
okay, Radney Foster or Bill Lloyd's solo career, Brad Jones is a big part of their music making process. And he said, I never heard an F-bomb in there, but after re-listening again, you have to be hearing the words wrong, although the lyrics are loopy. <laughs> yeah, they are loopy. Yeah. Yeah, that song is kind of like, it's almost like kind of a, a hallucination, a, a, an American historical hallucination is kind of what that song is. Thanksgiving passes slow on the reservation. Special ration It's got Hiawatha, Custer, Miles Standish, a vaudeville teepee show, yeah, and Pampers. Yeah, there's Pampers in there? That's what it said. Pamphlet. Okay, good. Pamphlet. Thank you. That's even better, though. So then, in that guy's telling, the American CIA is dropping Pampers from a helicopter. Yes. That's even better than dropping pamphlets. Well, it's, it's weirder and loopier. Yeah, I'm, I'm going with the Pampers from here on out. That's hilarious. Thank you for correcting that. The, um, the supreme Anglo intuition uh, <laughs> reminded me of a Graham Parker song. Yeah. It's called Break Them Down. Have you ever heard of it? No. I know Graham Parker. I've just never heard that song. He talks about uh, basically forcing Western ways and religion on Venezuelan savages. So yours doesn't get into any of that, of course, but it's this whole mixing of, you know, Westerns and, and Westernism, right? Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like it's kind of a companion piece to what I was doing. Yeah. Mine, mine is about, you know, it's about taking, taking land from other people, mm -hmm. you know, like it's about, you know, it's about manifest destiny, you know, sure. kind of a little bit, maybe there's a little bit of American guilt on that song. I'm this guy that's enjoyed all the fruits of us taking this great land from the Indians. So I've got a little bit of guilt about it, you know? The person that wrote the lyric out didn't notice that each, each chorus ends with subtle variation. And that's one of the terms I use in my teach songwriting. You say no buffalo escapes the blunderbuss. Mm -hmm. Then you say no animal. Then you say no living thing. I never thought about that, but you're right. And, and if you do those things, you do try to make it escalate. Mm -hmm. You try to make each variation kind of twist the knife a little harder than the variation before. That's right. So you got to put them in the right order. You want to talk about the way that song came about? Like, what made you think of it? Did you write the music first, lyric first? I wrote the music first with another guy, a guy named Sam Baylor, and we were just sort of jamming the music, and we really liked it. We liked the music, and so then uh, I went to my room a couple of days later and just cooked up this lyric. I don't really know why that lyric went to that music, but I had obviously been reading a lot about American history and some of the some of the some of the uh, injustices of our history, you know, not just the glory part, but the sort of embarrassing part. And uh, I just had a lot of imagery cooking up in my brain. And I, I just thought it was kind of interesting and fun to just sort of get it out. And I was trying to make a song that was kind of unlike some of the other songs that were going around, you know, I was trying to do something different. And so it was fun. It was kind of an experiment. You know, I, I haven't really 
that style of writing. I never really went back to it much because shortly after that, I came to realize that, that um, you know, you can write one or two songs per album that are like that. But if you write a whole album that is that kind of historical thing, kind of like the way the, the Decemberists do, mm-hmm. that ultimately, I don't think it's as lasting a music because the most lasting music has men and women in it. Mm-hmm. And the blunderbuss is just a bunch of dudes. You know what I mean? There's, <laughs> Except for there's no women in there. Except for Hiawatha's in. Well, yeah, hi. But you know, I even got Hiawatha wrong because at the time, <laughs> this is embarrassing. You know, I'd study Spanish, and so I figured, well, anything that ends with an A has to be the feminine. Hiawatha must be the the, the Indian princess. I, I, to my embarrassment, later I found out that Hiawatha was a dude. No way. Yeah. So even that I got wrong, you know, but, but at least the poetry of it's right. The intention of it, you get the intention that she sells her charms, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you're in, you're in good company on the mistakes because uh, Chris differed in pulling muscles from the shell. Uh, he says, uh, I feel like William Tell married Marion on her tiptoed feet and um, married Marion's not from William Tell. So, you know, uh, it happens. Well, we, we poets, we're allowed to conflate things. Yes. I yes. don't think that's against the rules, you know? In fact, when you, write, when you write music, especially when you write lyrics, I think you're supposed to be in kind of a disoriented dream state. That's really how you get the best stuff. Love that. And then later, on a different day, you can be more clear-eyed and edit it the way you see fit. But really, the, the creation is supposed to happen in a slightly confused and delirious state. That's when the best stuff comes out. You know? Well, and you said something really interesting when you were talking about recording on Recording Studio Rockstars on an interview, and you talked about how mistakes are important and if you can recognize when they work. Oh, yeah. Very true. And also, if you, are, if you work fast and recklessly, which I think is the best way to work, then mistakes are going to happen. But uh, if you work slow and cautiously, at the first stage, anyway, of your creation, you might end up with a more sterile creation. Yeah, too you know? careful. So I think it's almost better to work fast and reckless early. And then later, you can get all reasoned and uh, you know, bring, out, bring out your red pen. Good stuff. I try. The song I tried, you have a lot of vocal harmony on in the intro and uh, layering and, mm-hmm. and uh, feedback. Talk about intentional or unintentional mistakes. In the middle, there's a breakdown where there's a little bit of space and there's feedback. And at the end, there's what sounds like more intentional feedback. 
I actually don't remember the feedback. I don't. I haven't listened to that song in a long time, but I want to now because I always really liked the lyric uh, and the melody of that song. It came from a pretty heartfelt place, and I did have a kind of a breakup of sorts in Minnesota, and uh, so it, you know that song is close to my heart. All I remember about the song is that I was trying to make, I was trying to have a really fresh melody, and mm-hmm. my idea with melody, and I try to impart this on other people. Is some of the best melodies use a lot of upstrokes in the rhythm. Mm-hmm. They're not just showing the downbeats, but they're showing the, the one and, the two and, the three and. Lots of upstrokes. You know what I'm talking about? The rhythm of the melody is what you're saying. The rhythm of the melody. The, the pulse and the rhythm of the melody isn't just like a quarter note melody that will just bore people to tears. It goes like this, two, three, four. Here I am in North Dakota. But if you go one, two, three, four... Here I am in North Dakota. You see what I did? Totally. I put a bunch of the notes on the push beats instead of the straight beats. And also the other thing that I was trying to do with I Try, because I was already pretty conscious of melody writing, you know, how to do it, is I was trying to put broad intervals. A lot of people do lazy melody writing where one note just leads to the next note, which happens to be the note right next to it on the scale. But I was trying to make a few broader jumps, you know, jump up a third or jump up a sixth or whatever. And so I was trying to make a fresh melody with colorful lyrics with lots of lots of furniture in it. You know, I had disconnected phones in there and I had an actual state that I named. I named Minnesota and, um, you know, other stuff in there that, that I was trying to get in there to make what I considered a, a good melody and good lyric. I wrote down that I liked your melodic vocal leaps and that you're ha- you sound like you're having a good time singing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to make it sound joyful, you know, and I'm also trying to make my bass line sound joyful. Mm-hmm. I was really into a thing at that time where, like my bass parts, I still play bass on a lot of my production. My bass parts right now are a lot more supportive mm-hmm. and a little more serious. But at that time in my life, I was really into sort of joyous, almost funny bass playing. That, that was my thing. I think people dig that. I certainly do. When I listen to yeah, Power- me too. Power pop isn't my only staple. I don't really like to listen to it all day long because it's too narrow. But melodic pop, let's say, the bass should be a, a singer of its own in a way. Yeah, it, it can be, exactly. And the beautiful thing about bass is it's perfect at taking the back seat for a few bars. And then right when the time is right, it can leap out and take a little liberty. And that's where the joy and the, and the expression comes. Now the neighbors want to I love in Mary's Moving Day the way the build-up to the final chorus runs long. You keep doing the cycle over and over instead of just once, and you change the words every cycle. And then at the end of the song, you do a tag ending where instead of ad-libs, you just keep changing the rhyme, changing the, the line to match what you were saying in earlier choruses. But that works really, really well. 
words we never say As we leave behind the years we threw away In the hardwood floors and the crooked window panes Well, thanks. Thanks. That, I didn't realize that Mary's Moving Day did that. But looking back on it, I, I applaud myself for doing that because it's something I do preach to people now. I'm always looking for what I don't really like lists, but I do like list codas. Mm-hmm. I like a coda that builds. Mm-hmm. And I do try to encourage people to rearrange their arrangements once in a while where they do a little escalating list like that right before they're closing. And it really, and, and really, if we want to really see what the Ur list song is, it's Hard Rain's Gonna Fall. Mm-hmm. Have you ever noticed that one does it? Each time he does his little list, it takes him longer to get through it. Yep. Until later in the song, it's like, you got to get through it like eight or nine of them to finally get to the end of this list. And man, the sweat really builds when you do it like that. That guy, man, he, he was, that song is the, the, the king of all list songs. When when the lyricist does that, or when the the singer does that, it gives the musician something to do over each of those repetitions too, because they know they have to. Oh yeah, vary it somewhat, and and probably. Oh, build. exactly. Yeah, it's a great opportunity for the band. You know, an opportunity for the drummer to go to quarter note field, an opportunity for the bass player to go up an octave. Yeah, it's great. It's the kind of arrangement framework that musicians love to hang their stuff onto. So this was a one-off album. You never made another one by yourself of a whole album? No. No, I never did, although I did recordings after that. Mm-hmm. I did do a, an entire album about five or six years ago with a pal named Hans Rotenberry. Next on my list, Mountain Jack 2010. Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of consider Mountain Jack my other solo record, even though it's a buddy record. It's Hans and I together. But I did write, I wrote a lot of the lyrics on that album and a lot of the melody. And I just feel like I'm very invested in, I like mountain Jack better. Really. I just think it just adds up better, but it might not have that youthful effervescence that, that guilt's like had that people like, but I, I just always want people to hear mountain Jack. I just love it. And I like hearing my melodies sung by a better singer than me. I love hearing Hans Rotenberry sing these melodies. Froggy mountain shakedown. When I put that on, First of all, the lyric blew my mind. I love it so much. Froggy came down the mountain, Jack. He saw the zigzag sign. Took a three dollar loan on a two dollar high. When it came down to court in time, Froggy did exclaim, If there's a lady. Froggy did exclaim, if there's a lady here who let me near, I'm game. Yep. So awesome. Is that you? Thank you. Yeah, I wrote, I wrote most of that lyric. Hans wrote the thing about the uh, true love blossomed at the wave pool grounds. <laughs> and Hans wrote, uh, he, he turned up that woofer and the tweeters came around. So nice. And, and he, he wrote a, a bunch of the key kind of interesting little kind of idiomatic little sort of like the little snippets that are really idiomatic. Those are Hans's, but it was kind of my story. It was my idea to make it be about like borrowing too much money, getting in a hole and which America was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. We were, you know, at the time America was digging itself into an economic hole 
everyone was running up credit card debt, you know, and then, and so it, there was kind of a timeliness to it. So, but, but yeah, but, but the music and the guitar riff is, is Hans's, I think. I think Hans wrote pretty much all the music. So does that mean you wrote some of the melody too, or does that mean you took his melody? Uh, I, I wrote some of the melody. Okay. I think, I think Hans probably had most of the melody. Well, there's a lot of whimsical lyrics, especially on that one. Thanks. I think it's the best song that I've ever written. I, I've thought this many times. And the reason I think that is I think it just has a beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think it has a really good ending when he runs back up the mountain to, 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 get to see if his, his dad will bail him out. I, I, just, I just love the whole thing. It almost, you can almost hear him running up that hill, you know, sweating. He's in trouble. And I just I love everything about it. I just think it turned out so good. It's, it's probably my favorite thing that I've ever had a, had a hand in. Well, getting back to the blunderbuss, you said the blunderbuss, you can't write one of those on every album, but this is like you one up to yourself on that because you took something well, whimsical and it has a story and a beginning and an end and, it, and it, it works in a way that we don't have to hear it. In, like our minds are being blown for sure because it's, it's odd when we first hear it. Yeah. But we get it right away. Like we don't have to get into it heavily to go, oh, I know what he means. Yeah, yeah. That's a real trick. I'm just delighted that you singled that one out. As you can tell, I'm, <laughs> I'm really high on that song. There's a lot of other songs that I had done that I'm quite ashamed of and never, never <laughs> want to talk about again. But that's not one of them. Also, just as a side note, there is a wonderful video on YouTube of Hans singing that song in my studio live. Oh, I'll have to dig it up. And he really tells the story. and The camera's right in his face. And uh, you, and it's not lip sync. It's him singing the tracks. So it's him actually, probably five years after we cut the album, it's him singing the song again. You know, and it, it's just great. Well, one of the do, things I do is I have a writer's room on the website. So for each guest, we have a link to the interview, a link to the writer's room, and a link to the website. The website's just a billboard. What you want to link them to is our YouTube channel. Perfect. The YouTube channel is called Alex the Great Recording, and that's got about fifteen different uh, black and white vocalist videos that we shot last year. Okay. We got 15 of the greatest vocalists that Rob and I have ever produced or worked with, and we had them come into the studio and do a, a black and white close-up vocal video, not lip-synced. Nice. There's some good ones in there. A Likely Lad is more of a smoothly melodic piece compared to yep. Froggy Mountain Breakdown. Now a lot of people whisper that I didn't even miss her at Division of Labor, you're pretty much done explaining that. What about music? Who played what? Hans and I played everything, and then our friend Keith Brogdon played drums. And he played drums last. Hans and I no cut the whole thing to a click track and got everything how we liked it. And we might put it like a, a temporary, you know, dummy drum loop or something on a couple of them. And then, and then Keith came in and played drums. But, but all of the guitars are, are me and Hans sharing the guitars. 
Now, you wouldn't normally, with a band, suggest someone do that, and yet it came out perfectly. Like, I can't tell you did it, which is the trick. I would suggest to a band. And I also really like solo records. I like hearing a record where a guy does all his own overdubs. I think those are cool records. That first Paul McCartney record is cool. Yeah. And it's Paul playing everything because he knew what every song was. He knew the exact right next thing to put on. And the thing that happens when a man overdubs to his own stuff is it amplifies his particular thumbprint. Right. Like every artist or singer or songwriter has their personal thumbprint. But if you get too big a crew on there, sometimes that personalized thumbprint get kind of obscured. But if with each overdub, you actually amplify your thumbprint, your choices, your way of constructing a phrase, you get a real strong musical statement. And then the other thing is, don't get me wrong, I love ensemble tracking. In fact, I do more ensemble band tracking now than I ever have. Mm -hmm. But I do do it in a kind of a special way. So I was just proselytizing about the, the virtues of a guy doing his own overdubs. And my example is that Paul McCartney first album. Sure. It's cool. But then sometimes people get too much up in their own self and they need to have a, a room full of guys that they can bounce ideas off and hear the song in a whole new way that they weren't Im imagining. And in that case, band tracking is the way to go. And I do a lot of it now. And my whole thing about band tracking is to put an artist who has written his song in with a bunch of guys that he might not have even met before. He might not have even played with them before. One of the guys that I've picked might even be kind of an outlier. That the reason he's there might not even be clear on the way. What? He brought in a he brought in a, an accordion player on this, you know. <laughs> but I put him in the room and then I don't do any pre-production. The only pre-production I do is with the artist about what the song means. Once he and I know what the song means and what, what the arrangement should be, then I then I put him into the studio with the band and I have him figure out the song right there with the mics already up. And I try to capture everybody in the room's first response to the song. So a lot of the records of mine that you hear that are finished mixed records, you're hearing the sound of a drummer or a bass player or a keyboard guy that has only known the song for maybe 45 minutes or an hour. Mm -hmm. The song is totally new to him and that's what is on the record. You're hearing the guy's knee-jerk response to, to the artist's song. You're hearing his first reaction. If the first reactions aren't right, or the guys in the band are fighting themselves, that's when I step in as the air traffic control guy. Mm -hmm. I go kneel next to the drummer, and I whisper something into his ear that might unlock it. Or I go whisper something to the bass player. You know, But I'm just there to sort of quietly whisper things that will eventually make this thing unlock and unlock quick. And hopefully to the delight and the inspiration of the artist. That sounds very much like a movie director that uh, understands how to work with actors. You don't tell an actor how to act because that's, yeah. that's counterproductive and it pisses them off. Exactly. And you know, it's interesting you say that. It's really interesting you say that because, you know, it, when I was coming up and I'm trying to learn all the tricks in the trade, of course I read George Martin's biography. And of course I read about Phil Spector and his technique. But I kind of got to the end of that thing. I couldn't really, there wasn't much more to learn from reading those books about the great producers. And I found myself getting way into the memoirs of film directors. Mm -hmm. By reading Bergman's memoir, I learned way more about record making than I did from reading, you know, some some interview with Butch Vig. Uh, the Kurosawa memoir, I learned a whole bunch about making a team and making your team work and what actors' motivations were, and also telling a story. That's why I was talking about Froggy Mountain Shakedown. You know, I mean, in a way, I was trying to make a little movie. 
And good movies have a good beginning, a good middle, and a good ending. And then, like you said, when you're at the studio, it is kind of like a movie shoot. You've you got a team, and you're trying to get, get this team to tell a great, colorful story. Well, one of the things that songwriters run into is that there's a glut of music right now. So being heard is impossible. But if your song it reaches people on an emotional level, has a story, has a, some kind of um, momentum and uh, interest, human interest, then it, will, it can rise above the pack. But if it doesn't, it's just the same as everything else. So true. So um, I'm just going to put my uh, two cents in here that you and uh, Hans need to get together and tour these two albums. <laughs> Just, you know, revisit it. Have some fun with it. I like that idea. Touring both albums as a package. That's a cool concept. Yeah, because you could go together and you can bring some more musicians you like and do, you know, just pick the rooms you want to do it in and I would be there. Oh, yeah. That's a good idea. Okay. I like that. Put in your back of your mind. I will. You were in a group called The Long Players. Are you still are? Yeah, I mean, it, that's kind of a rotating cast. There's, there's different bass players that do it. But okay. in the last few years, I've been on like 80%. 80% of the time, it's me on bass. Okay. Tell us how that feeds into your arranging and production skills when you do things like that. When you, what is learning about other music and getting inside other changes uh, feed into your production work? Well, uh, the first thing it does is it makes you kind of, um, it makes you chart out the song. And when you actually are forced to sit down and chart out the song, whether you do it on paper or just mentally, sometimes the chart's just in your mind. But, but by charting it out, you realize, you know what's weird about this song? They start with a chorus and never come back to it again. That's weird. Yeah. But somehow it works. I never realized till now that that's what it did, you know? Or there's other songs. I'm trying to think of an example, but... Oh, I can think of a good example. There was a big song called Everlasting Love. Mm-hmm. You know Everlasting Love? Depends on which one. There's two. Written by Matt Gaden and Buzz. Yep. And Mac and Buzz wrote it. They're national guys. So it was a big hit in the 60s, and even Pearl Jam did a cover. A lot of people covered it. Everlasting Love. So I, I had to chart it out one time, and only by charting did I realize that, wait a minute. This song starts out with this really long verse that I've heard this song a million times, and I still don't really recognize this verse. It's the most inconsequential like invisible nothing verse you've ever heard in your life. And then they get to the chorus. It's like, oh yeah, this song. I know this song. Well, this is a great song. And then by charting it, I realized, hmm, the producer that day did a really smart thing. The producer knew that the verse was shit and that the chorus is where the whole game was. And so back in the 60s, they acted super recklessly about stuff like that. He just jettisoned the verse after that first verse. They never even came back to it. They get through that flogging, lousy first verse and then they get into the chorus and they just keep rocking the chorus the whole rest of the song. And so by charting a song out, you realize those things. I think Mr. Jones's comments about this song deserve a little sidebar analysis before we get back to the interview. So here's my take on what he just said. Brad was referring to the original version of the song as recorded in 1967 by Robert Knight. Let's listen to Knight's version and notice that he sings the melody squarely on the beat. Feel with regret I come back 
Now let's listen to Carl Carlton's dance remix from 1974, which agrees with Brad's earlier advice about pushing the melody to the offbeats. Now let's hear the modulation in first chorus, and notice that although the song returns to the intro, which has the same melody and chords as the verse, it goes right back to the chorus after that, with no further verse lyrics. Personally, I like the verse to Everlasting Love, but that's because I was raised on the Carl Carlton version, which has a couple of improvements over the original release. The original starts on a one chord, then it plays a four chord with a one in the bass, and an added sixth, because that sixth is in the melody. Then it goes to another four chord, but without the sixth, and it's still over one, and then it returns to the one chord. So that third chord isn't as interesting as Carl Carlton's version. In Carl Carlton's version, he does a one chord, a four chord over one with an added sixth because it's in the melody, and then he makes a minor four chord, and that minor creates tension and interest for the ear, and then he returns to the one chord. That, plus the pushed eighth notes on the melody, are big improvements on the intro and verse of this version. For a comparison of these versions and other recorded versions, see Wikipedia under Everlasting Love, Song. Okay, let's get back to our interview with Brad Jones. So here's what I do, because, you know, my whole thing about songwriting now, now that I, I don't write much and I'm more produced, uh, but I still consider myself a song activist because the first thing I do when, when an artist brings me their batch of songs is I, I look at each song and I unfocus. Before I listen to the song, I, don't, I try not to listen to any of the details. I just unfocus and I listen to the whole thing go by and then I decide what's the strongest part of this song. Is it the verse? Is it the bridge? Or is it the chorus? It's the same kind of harsh yardstick that whoever that guy was that produced Everlasting Love, he did the same thing. And it's triage. You decide real early on before you get any further. After the first listen, 
I need to decide what's the motor of this song? What's the very strongest part of the song? And how do I make that part of the song happen more often? That's my, that's my number one thing I do when I assess a song and figure out how I can help the artist make it better. Awesome. And then sometimes I find surprising things and the artist doesn't always like what I'm saying, but sometimes they come around to it and we get a stronger song. Once in a while, this happens, I find that the bridge is actually stronger than the chorus. Mm-hmm. And I go back to the artist and I say, look, you're going to hate me for this. <laughs> could we just make the bridge happen three times and make the chorus just happen once? And in effect, we've made the chorus become the bridge now. That is awesome. And, and it's actually worked. It's actually worked a few times and the artist has been open to trying it. So that's the kind of overview sort of um, big architecture, first listen kind of criteria that I have to bring to it when I assess a song for the first time. So let's take uh, an example of you playing bass and talk about what you gleaned from learning to play songs just like the record. You were on a, a song uh, that was on the album in 2002, This Is Where I Belong, the songs of Ray Davies and the Kinks, and it was called Picture Book, mm-hmm. working with Bill Lloyd and Tommy Womack. Yeah. And you played bass on that, and uh, a lot of theory, a lot of uh, scales in there. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember much about the bass line on the, on, uh, this is where I belong, although I love that song. I do remember the bass, learning the bass line on Picture Book. And, and that was great because it made me realize, wait a minute, a bass line can be uh, involved with little chromatic notes, <laughs> and it can be really uh, its own little architecture, you know, especially when you do what the Kinks did, which is double it with a 12-string guitar. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you can get the guitar player to double your bass part, part man, suddenly everybody just sounds better. theory all over the place yeah and i would say uh, there, there's a little sort of thing i say to, to melody writers and i would say it to the to the kinks guy that cooked up the bass part too is like good job because dude you cooked up a bass line that i can draw on a chalkboard with chalk and the students at the very back of the of the schoolroom can plainly see the shape of that melody you've just written mm-hmm Bad melodies are just, you know, like I was saying earlier, they're just this sort of vague line that goes across the middle of the chalkboard. And the guy in the back of the room can't even really tell what that is. But if you do a good graphic melody or bass line that has that good shape that you can draw on a chalkboard and you know that, it's, that that's what it is, then you've got something. And, and that's what that Kinks bass line is. You could draw that stair step and it'd be really visual, especially when it comes back down the three steps at the end. That's the little hook at the end. Beautiful. Another um, way to record a cover is to not follow the original recipe at all. And that's what you did with the 1996 album, The Raspberries Preserved, a tribute. You had one song called Let's Pretend. Mm -hmm. 
I bought that long before I knew who you were because I'm a Raspberries fan and I've had it for years. And when I was looking for songs that you that were by you, this Brad Jones credit came up. So I said, okay, well, he got a girl singer. That's cool, whatever. And I listened to it today. <laughs> listened to it today. <laughs> and for the first time, an hour before this interview, and I've heard it a million times, I said, oh my God, that's Brad singing. <laughs> it is. Not afraid it? to show my girly falsetto. It's awesome. <laughs> but I didn't know. Well, a lot of guys have to be macho when they sing, you know what I mean? And you're just like, oh, yeah, yeah. know where this song takes me. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I was, that's, what I, that's what I was trying to do, yeah. Trying to make it beautiful and pretty. I can't sleep nights Wishing you were here beside me Can't help feeling That's the way it's gonna be you know we could run away, but I couldn't bear to hear the things they'd say. Do you remember that far back? What made you go for the style of arrangement with a song? Because it's not like the original. Yeah, I don't remember why. Okay. I, I, I have no idea why. But I do remember I wanted the verse to be real kind of mystical and suspended and mellow so that when the chorus came in, you'd be surprised at its grandeur. And, and it, it always did sound like a very grand, elegant chorus to me. So that was just my way of uh, emphasizing the grandness of the, and the elegance of the chorus. It's this sort of white carriage with white horses that has gold brim that just sort of just sort of appears on the screen. It just sort of rolls in. You know, I wanted that. That's how I wanted the chorus to sound. The original song is so amazing because the verse, the pre-chorus and the chorus are all individually amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And then you've got this building. Yeah. No, we could run away. Oh my gosh, right? And then the chorus comes in and I know. like glass. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great tune. So glad they let me do that one. I'm so glad that they, that they didn't make me do Go All the Way, which of course is their biggest hit. Mm -hmm. But think about it. Go, go, look, go look. Now that we're all grown ups now, go look at that song again. The reason that song was a hit and is beloved is that it has a kick-ass intro. Yep. And it has a kick-ass outro. Listen to those verses. It's, it's corny. It's 50s music. So it just, it just goes to show you that even a song like that, you can make be beloved if you make a kick-ass intro and a <laughs> kick-ass outro. I like it. Because that's really that's the motor of it to me. Well, I don't put down music like the Archies, so, you know, I'm, I'm a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, like, I like some of the Archies. Now, I want to get into some more covers, and then we're going to jump into you as a producer. And I wrote down that you're, you played some bass on Good Friend, which is 
alternate takes of Matthew Sweet stuff, and it was live, apparently, right? Yeah, I was in his band. You were in his band? At the time. I was in his band for maybe a year or a year and a half. Was it after Girlfriend or before Girlfriend? It was after Girlfriend. It was on the Girlfriend tour. Okay. So Matthew played, Matthew's a great bass player. He played all his own bass parts mm-hmm. on the album. Mm-hmm. But my job was just to get in there and, and play his bass parts live and sing some of the harmonies with him. I was trying, maybe I failed, but I was really just trying to just be a good employee and just play Matthew's bass parts mm-hmm. the way he had put them on the album. I wasn't trying to reinvent them at all. But they were good bass parts. I like Matthew, I like, you know, and Matthew influenced me. He said, no, dude, use a pick. And don't be afraid just to do some plump eighth notes. And, you know, he, 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 everybody I've ever worked with has always influenced me at least a little bit. You know, I mean, if you're not getting influenced by people, then you're not living life and, you know, you're, you're dead, basically. I'm going to talk about two more covers, artists that you did, that you basically played, played based on their music. So Marshall Crenshaw is next. And you toured with him in 1996, according to my records. I also toured with him in 91. I was in his band for about a year. Sweet. So on the 1996 Miracle of Science album, you mixed and engineered, played cello, Rhodes, bass, and vocal harmony. Marshall, he's been a real mentor for me and a, and a real helper to me and a, a, a great friend and a, an inspiration, too. And it's always just wonderful to play with him. You know, he just cooks up the most amazing chord progressions and melodies. It's just fun for any musician to play that stuff. And I just really enjoyed playing on that album. I, I can't remember much about it, but I just, just love playing with Marshall. He's, he's the best. All right, let's talk about Ron Sexsmith. The album is Other Songs, and the song is Average Joe. To bus road and down Broadway There's nobody you would know In all the storefront windows I see my face And the lame expression of this average show Lord, That's some bass playing that I'm really proud of. Oh my God. Blows my mind. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I love that one. That whole, that entire album is just great. And I, I'm just real proud of that stuff. And Ron was wonderful to work with. And, and Mitchell and Chab were fantastic. And they were supportive of what we were doing. And it was just great. Beautiful. You know, I played that whole record 
sitting in a folding chair directly across from Ron. <laughs> Ron and I were in the same drummer was in a booth. Ron is on a folding chair about six feet away from me, and I'm sitting there learning the song by watching his fingers. And he's singing the album. And that was kind of a thrill because I'm hearing his wonderful voice in my headphones singing his album because he didn't go back and redo the vocals. Those were the vocals. That is the album. Wow. So it was kind of a thrill being right there, you know, just that part of it might be part of why it sort of forced me to try to find a better way to play each song because it just seemed kind of important sitting there right next to him, you know? Mm -hmm. It was great. Now we're going to do a quote and a question. Okay. I do a quote from somebody you've worked with, and then I ask you a question. Okay. All right. You produced and recorded David Mead's album Tangerine in 2006 and his album Almost and Always in 2010. In a 2006 interview on an official David Mead fan site about the Tangerine album, here's what David had to say about you. Brad Jones can play every Beatles song that there's ever been on three different instruments, or he can play Rachmaninoff on the piano. Not only that, he thinks orchestrally, and he understands a ton of different instruments and what kind of timbre they have and where they would fit in well. David also said you taught him a lot about arrangements. So that's the quote. And here's my question. Using a song from either of those albums, could you share a little bit about the decision-making process for choosing what kind of arrangement would be right for a certain kind of song? And since we're talking about David Mead, please include in your answer the most important instrument in any pop song arrangement. Wow. The most important instrument in any, I guess it'd be the voice and maybe even the background vocals. And then it all has to build from there. I mean, after you got that figured out, then you know if you're going to frame guitars or pianos or, or neither, you know. But, um, and then as far as that particular album, I don't know. I mean, I just remember that album had a lot of wonderful variety. I just know that I just love all those songs. I just love everything David does. And I know that he and I just got right into it together. But, you know, I think every single step of the way making those records with David was, was he and I together, like, finding stuff. I don't ever feel like I was, like, bossing around the arrangement. I just had ideas, and he had ideas, and we threw them in there, and we got them, we got them going, you know? I just know that I love that record, and I love I loved Flavors. And, and all the textures on that album. I love his songs on that album. I love Chatterbox. I think, to me, like you hear the word power pop mm -hmm. get thrown around. Mm -hmm. I have a different interpretation of the word power pop. Like, to me, Chatterbox is power pop.
because it's pop and it's it's punchy and powerful mm-hmm. but it doesn't sound like what classic power pop sounds like you know, it's, it's more gadgety than that you know? gotcha but to me that's a super super successful high energy high definition pop song and that owes a lot to david i will tell you one thing about the album the song chatterbox is mostly built on david's demo he had a kick-ass demo of chatterbox and i believe that we used elements from actually pulled not just played elements but pulled elements from his demo physically and threw them onto our grid and built around them nice so hats off the good demos and when i recognize a good demo i never get threatened by it i get excited by it and i want to use as much of it as i can they can be structurally they can be like the the girders to the to your yeah to your piece yeah yeah, yeah exactly all right, a second uh, quote and question are about bass layering and guitar layering. I just interviewed Bill Domain, who, along with Molly Felder, you recorded and produced 10 albums for the group Swan Dive. When Bill and I were talking about their song, Better to Fly, he said, you're a fantastic bass player, but you're also very creative with sound. He said that on that Mayfair album, uh, you played a lot of electric bass, but you sometimes would double your bass with a stand-up bass or a moog in different parts of the song. Mm-hmm. Do you happen to remember how you recorded the bass parts, either on that album or on that song, how you made your decisions about what to layer and and what order you did them in? I don't remember the order, but I do like doubling bass stuff. It becomes more more like chamber music and more mysterious. I would probably start with with an electric bass. And uh, if I knew ahead of time that I was going to double it with an upright bass, I might make that electric bass be sort of muted muted with the butt of my hand using a pick you know and i know that that works really well with upright bass that's a great doubling sound Mm -hmm. they use that sound on music row in the 50s and 60s in nashville but you hear it on the la stuff too you know a picked like okay we'd use a pick and that really the picked electric bass goes well with with the fingered upright bass that's a good combination and then when you double some something with a moog bass or or like with a I like the double bass parts with, with Pulsner guitar, too. Um, that's its own unique sound, too. And you can also make it happen just for one part of the song, and that way you're defining the different sections of the song. And that's good for scene shifts. When you're playing electric bass and upright bass, for instance, where the, your fingers are touching the strings, not like a Moog, um, do you find yourself trying to match the vibrato exactly, or do you like, the, do you like it being slightly different and that's part of the appeal? Yeah, I wouldn't try to match. I don't use much vibrato, but if I did, I wouldn't try to match it. It's the same reason that, you know, when I have people double track their vocal, I don't let them hear their vocal they're doubling to. I just make them sing the thing again. And that way they sing it their own way each time, and it's not sounding too carbon copy, you know. Excellent. So Max, quote is from you. In the 2016 interview for recording Studio Rockstars by Lid Shaw, you said, every record is its own puzzle. I often use that same analogy myself in songwriting classes, and I talk about how writing a song is like building a jigsaw puzzle, except the shapes of the pieces aren't predetermined, and every new piece you build can influence and change the shape and effect of all the pieces it touches. You change a word, and it changes the connotation of a whole line or stanza. You change one chord, and the line feels completely different. Would you care to elaborate on your own comment uh, how this whole thing works with recording instead of with writing. So when you're recording, you're making a new recording, every piece you change affects the other pieces. Yeah, that's true. And that's that's why I like 
uh, ensemble playing with people that have not overthought the song, mm-hmm. people that ha- might have heard the song just a half an hour ago, mm-hmm. because I'm always fascinated by seeing what a guy will play. Like, for instance, a guy listens to the song. You, you say, hey, take these headphones. Go listen to this, this tune that the guy wrote. We're going to track it in about a half an hour. Go listen to it. So he comes back and he's got his idea in his head what he's going to do. Well, the minute he hears what the drummer's doing, he throws that out the window, instantly responding to the drummer's idea. And so what you get is this sort of um, inter- interaction of molecules or protons that are jetting around in unpredictable fashion. Chemistry. And when things are going right, you get this alive thing that turns out not quite like what any of the people thought it was going to turn out like. It's this instant and reactive hybrid from people reacting to other people. So that's the kind of, that's the part of the puzzle that I like. There's a little bit of chaos theory involved, not like a methodical puzzle solving. It's more like, let's throw these different chemicals into this, into this beaker and let's shake it twice and make sure the record light is on while we're shaking and let's see what, let's see what we get. And then, and then we'll listen to the playback and we'll decide what failed about the experiment and we'll go back and we'll tweak that. But we'll find out what's right about the experiment and amplify that. I read in an interview that Amy Rigby wrote a song about you called Brad Jones. <laughs> yeah. And for your birthday. Yeah, she performed it at my 40th birthday. It was a surprise birthday party. And man, that made my day. It was funny, too. It was really funny. I can't find it on the internet. I don't think she's recorded it. I don't think she ever recorded it. But it went something like, um, who built the pyramids? Who cured cancer? Brad Jones. Brad Jones. Who invented the wheel? Who, you know, all this grand stuff. It was Brad Jones, something like that. She's funny. She's awesome. Yeah, I love her. She is a great writer. Well, through you and, um, and my recent guests, I'm, I'm starting to listen to Amy Rigby and I'm starting to listen to Jill Sobiel, and I really love what I'm hearing. Oh, Jill is, Jill is a fantastic writer. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those great Jill songs she has co-written with Robin Eaton, my, my studio partner. Mm-hmm. Including I Guess to Go. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They wrote that in about 10 minutes. Wow. Yep. They wrote it quick and we recorded it the next day. So there's, there's a case for recording something while it's fresh. I have a beauty pageant style question for you. If you were a Marvel superhero, musician, or producer, what would you say is one of your main superpowers in the studio? Uh, I think, I really do think my superpower is assessing a song. I think I think I'm really good at figuring out what's right and what's broken about a song. I really think that's what it comes down to. And everything I do instrumentally or sound wise just stems from what we found out in that first inquiry about what's making this song tick. What is the motor of this song? What's good about this song? How do we turn it up? I think that's really what I kind of do all day long. I think that's my main job. I don't know about superpower, but I like to think that that's sort of my main job. That's, um, that's what I do, and hopefully it's why people come back and want to make a second record with me, because I made them sound better, and I made their songs sound better. I hope that's what it's doing. I never feel like I get a gig because a guy felt like I made his snare drum sound better. I always think it's because I made his vocal sound better or his song sound better. And, and I guess vocals is the other part of it. I'm very much a vocal producer, right? I think about the singer and the key he's in and his motivation and how loud or soft he's singing and how he phrases it. I think about that the entire time. Everything stems from that. That's how I mix, too. I always start my mix starting with all the vocals, and then I start putting in instruments. Tell us about a recent accomplishment that you're really proud of. Well, you know, I'm just like all 
artist people, they always think the last thing they do is the greatest. So on my mind, this is like the last record that I did that just came out, which is the Hayes Carl record. Mm-hmm. It's called What It Is. And it really is excellent. Hayes just really brought it. And everybody, the team was great. So that, that's what's on my mind today. What have you got going on coming up? Uh, there's a few things coming up, but the thing I'm kind of excited about is I'm, I'm doing something I've never done before. I'm creating music for a TV show. Wow. And it's given me an opportunity to just compose, you know, just to do instrumental music. That's, that's my instrumental writing. I've really enjoyed that. And the show is, uh, is going to be on either Hulu or Netflix or something this summer. It's, it's called Perpetual Grace LTD, and it stars Ben Kingsley. And they've got oh. me doing some of the background music. And I also did some of the sung music. The, the guy that created the show sort of does a little bit of songwriting himself. And so he wrote songs that are actually sung. Those songs, I, all I did I suppose, was I produced, co-produced those. And they're also in the show. But the show has a real definite palette. There's a certain sort of batch of instruments and sounds that gets used throughout the show. And I'm sort of writing to those sounds. And it was a real thrill for me to sort of put that hat on for a while. And I'm curious to see how they put it to picture. I haven't seen any of it yet. They, they only have rough cuts. And I'm going to work a little bit more on it this summer. There's a little more work to be done still. So that's kind of the thing I'm excited about now. That sounds great. What about artists that are coming in? You have people coming back at a repeat and you've got new people? Yeah, I've got a repeat that's coming back in May that I'm thrilled to be working with again. She's an artist that not many people know about. Her name is Jennifer Jackson. Mm-hmm. It's Jennifer with, with one N. But um, she was a New York singer-songwriter uh, who I did a few records with in the 90s and early aughts. And I always just loved her ethos. Her music is very much like a beautiful haiku, very thoughtful melodies and chord progressions and very zen-like simple lyrics and she's a beautiful singer and she's got a fantastic harmonic sense and uh and she just does the kind of music that's really the kind of music that always gets shoved aside because it's too quiet and thoughtful it's not Mm -hmm. loud or um controversial enough for people to go viral about you know what i mean sure and i'd like to believe that when all this is over that that uh for her sake the people will realize that she turned in a, an amazingly beautiful body of work that's very meaningful and very much her style. She doesn't sound like anybody else, but you know, we'll see if that happens. But I'm so delighted to be working with her again, Jennifer Jackson. I do, I do records that are loud and splashy and artists that people have heard of. And then I do these other records with these sort of, and I keep coming back to some of these artists. I keep working with them, even though they, they're never breaking through to a bigger audience. I just like being involved in their over and, and, and would like to believe that Merritt will win out in the end. She's definitely one of those. Beautiful. I'm to look for her. Yeah, you should. Well, I really enjoyed talking with you today and learned a lot. And I think that you're going to add a lot to the um, conversation. Well, good. Thanks. You've been wonderful to, to be interviewed by. You are obviously very skilled at this. Thank you so much for doing this and for choosing me to do it. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, uh, I, I love your work. and uh, Yeah, I'll, that's the other thing. Thank you for listening. You actually took the time to listen. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. Take care, Brad. Okay, man. Okay, see you. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 8, with Brad Jones. There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the Writer's Room link for this episode. If you like the podcast, consider giving us a review at Apple Podcasts. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.